John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1181.ps14716, certificate number 16919, Snowflakes. Have you ever seen a snowflake, John? Just right off the bat, are we talking about liberals who... Can't take criticism from Pepe the Frog? That is absolutely what we mean. I have seen many snowflakes in that case, <laughs> both online and in real life. How did you find them? Did you have to go to their safe spaces? <laughs> no, did I didn't. Did you have to burrow in? No, I... I Trigger warning, I'm coming uh, in. I'm, I'm in the long winners. <laughs> I, I attract them and also am attracted to them. Uh, so we 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 find one another in the in the... Coming through the rock. You're not crazy about their politics, but you love their age demographic. Oh, I love their politics too. I just, I don't like their tone, <laughs> but I love their, you know, the poli- their politics are the same as mine. Uh, we do see uh, snowflake used as a pejorative yeah. in our day. Some, um, so a, a snowflake being something that melts, that's so delicate that if you apply any heat to it, it disappears. I think the phrase, in addition to kind of the, the delicacy and the what uh, temporality? What's what's the word for something that's that vanishes? Evanescence. Evanescence. The evanescence of snowflakes. Also a great like pseudo metal band. <laughs> great pseudo emo metal. <laughs> no, okay, you're right. Not maybe not great. In addition to that, there's also kind of the uniqueness of the snowflake. Oh, I see. You're right. Where, where everyone was raised to think they were a special flower, and therefore all their ideas were good and valid. And I think there's some of that when you hear. Uh, it become kind of an ideological insult. Well, you just said special flower, and it does has the, the connotations of a hothouse flower or something that can't survive right. in the in the wild. Also evanescent. Evanescent. Although it wouldn't dissolve. Orchids don't dissolve into goo. You wouldn't put one on your date if they did. Worst corsage. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if no one has invited me to a prom in a long time. Not even one of those those like old people proms. Are you hoping to be like one of the uh, celebrities that gets asked on a YouTube video? Oh, like, wouldn't that be nice? Ten Roger, come to my prom. I, well, what would what would you do if a 16 year old put a YouTube video up that said Ken Jennings come to my prom with me? I honestly can't believe I have dodged this bullet. Because think of all the nerdy kind of quiz bowl team. Sure. Kids who would be like. Jeopardy guy would be my date. It seems like a no-brainer. Would you... I mean, what's the deal with those? Do they fly you out? Do they put you up? Or is it a thing that you do like pro bono? 
sometimes it's like a big celebrity. Like if, if the thing gets big enough, you know, 10 million people are passing around this kind of creepy guy being like, Amy Adams, you must come to my prom. Anne Hathaway, I loved you in Les Mis. And it, it kind of feels... Well, something about how gendered it usually is. It's yeah, usually yeah. a guy creeping on a female celeb. I would 100% go to the prom with Amy Adams. <laughs> right. But in this scenario, I think it's a non-celeb asking you. You, oh, you oh, get yeah. that, right? I see. <laughs> I mean, if Amy Adams asked me to go to her like prom. It's usually not celebrities who are like, hey, <laughs> this is Cardi B. I'm looking to go to a prom in middle America. Hit me up. <clears throat> I think I would go with Anne Hathaway, but I wouldn't be as excited. <laughs> I've met Anne Hathaway and I think I would, I would. You would, would just drop her off at home right after you guys. Be like, hey, that was great. Thank you. You know, put my hand out for a handshake. Amy Adams, I don't know. I'd be like, do you want to go like drive down to the port? Yeah. I've, I'd, I I think celebrities sometimes get backed into a corner where they kind of have to do it. Oh, and they, that's and they, awful. Have to, they have to fly out to. Well, come on. Would, would you do Muncie, it? Indiana. Would you do it? I don't. Think so? Do I have 30 seconds to think about it? I don't know. I just feel like it could, something about the optics of if you're the guy, the sought after guy, you're still uh, dating an underage, you're yeah. going on a date with a teenage girl. I see what you're, you're saying. You're a married guy in his 40s. Right. Going to a high school dance. Right. At the request of a teenage girl. Right. Does anything about the optics bother you there? Hmm. I don't know. I'm, on, I'm trying to think of whether or not it would be good for my brand. <laughs> but, I, but I, yeah, it would, it would depend. The evanescence right? of high school girls. <laughs> Find the long-awaited long winter's record. If she had asymmetrical bangs and she was really broody and really mad at everybody and she was asking me to go to her prom just to like infuriate the world, I think I would help her out. I think I would do it. Goth girls only. Yeah. If she was like a sweet girl that had a crush on me from the internet, you're right. It would be a little weird. There's a few things wrong with it. But the uniqueness of snowflakes, of course, has a scientific basis. Actual snowflakes now. There is no real difference between millennial snowflakes. They're all exactly the same. I was not going to talk about woke university snowflakes at all. You're the only one who thinks this show. <laughs> well, no, you about... haven't clarified it. You have yet to say, no, this is about I'm actual I'm talking snowflakes. about actual flakes of snow that came from the sky, little tiny crystals. Have you seen one? Does it look like the, uh, I went to a Christmas maze last night and there were snowflakes the size of a Mack truck that you had to walk around. We were trying to find all nine of Santa's reindeer in this lights display. How many people do you think went into that maze and didn't come out? Uh, all of them. It was a giant maze, right? Well, it's on the outfield of Safeco Field where the Mariners play. And in the spring, the grounds staff is going to come on and they're going to find people frozen like Jack Torrance in The Shining <laughs> out in the middle of center field because they never got out. But you know how snowflakes look, right? With, yeah. with their arms and their... I've made them out of paper. I know what they look like. Right. The Japanese art of kirigami or paper cutting only practiced by Americans to make little white snowflakes in, uh, in yeah, second grade. That's right. But those snowflakes are often wrong. Have you, have you ever thought about that? Really? Oh, because they're symmetrical? Are snowflakes symmetrical? Most snowflakes are symmetrical, but the problem with the snowflakes you make on paper is you fold the paper over once, fold it over twice, fold the whole thing over again, and then you cut. Right. And that is going to give you eight-way symmetry. Okay. Right? Because Yo, sure. Four, two, four, eight. Right. Um, the problem is snowflakes always have six-sided symmetry. Really? Yes. Is there a way to fold the paper in order to get six-sided symmetry? It's annoying. You'd have to fold it in half and right. then fold that half into thirds. 
Right. Which is kind of beyond the abilities, the geometric abilities of a lot of second graders. Right. The teacher would have to go around. So all snowflakes have six-sided symmetry. Why? It's very difficult to visualize. Remember how everyone's favorite thing on the omnibus is when I try to explain some visual mathematical or scientific concept in audio form? I don't remember that, but... <laughs> no, people love it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I thought their favorite thing was mail trucks. But yeah, so what is six-sided uh, symmetry? So water molecules crystallize in the air. Snowflakes form around a piece of dust or salt or pollen or you know, bacteria. Right. And water has kind of a, even though it's a, a single hydrogen, two, sorry, a single oxygen with two hydrogens on either side, you'd think it would be a line. But in fact, the... Uh, Dihydrogen oxide. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but in fact, the negative and positive charge on the hydrogen versus the oxygen makes it kind of bent. Um, it's, it's a little V. A V shape, right. And the way that um, those crystallize, the closest way to pack those little Vs together is in a tetrahedron, which ah. is a four-sided pyramid where every side is a uh, triangle. Sure. If you can picture such a thing. I can picture it. Can you picture it? Yeah. <laughs> do, you love, do you love Pixar movies like, I'm, I'm like, picturing it like now. Cars 3 and Ratatouille? <laughs> then if you take those little tetrahedrons and you try to pack those together to make a larger solid. Right. I think because, you know, because they're each equilateral triangles, all the angles are 60 degrees. But if you pack four of them together, they become hexagons, right? Yeah. They're, you know, the 60 degree angles are such that, you know, you would need six of those to make a full 360 degrees. Oh, I see. And so when you pack those tetrahedrons together, they make rings that are effectively six-sided Right. Shapes. Um, oh, sure. Kind of like, like, like the, the way hexagons form on a soccer ball. Yeah, like the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie. That's exactly the best way to picture it. Yeah. If you have a hard time picturing what I just said, think about the moon hitting your eye mm -hmm. uh, like a pizza pie like would. Like a pizza pie. And that's kind of how snow in a In a six-sided uh, tetrahedron. But have you ever seen a snowflake that looks like one of these little beautiful six-sided crystals from the, you know, the Polar Express or something? I've never looked at a snowflake under magnification. So no, they all look just like fluffy little bits of down. We get wet snow here in the Pacific Northwest. And I remember this as a kid being very annoyed that the educational establishment was trying to fool me into thinking that snowflakes had this beautiful crystalline look. Right, they were look. dry snow. Yeah, and in, and in fact, everybody knew that snow just looked like lumps of Dacron falling right. out of the sky. Blobs. And it's because it agglomerated and formed bigger blobs. But I have had the experience of having a dry, a fairly dry single snow crystal land on my dark coat, and it actually looked like a little hexagon with things right. sprouting off the vertices. I definitely have seen that. You know, in Alaska, a, a feature every winter is the hoarfrost, which forms on every that, surface. That's a feature. Uh, it is because, Alaska featuring hoarfrost. <laughs> because when you're when you're in the middle of winter, I mean, you, you'll take anything. But the hoarfrost is so beautiful, and when it comes upon the town or upon the land. It just turns everything magical. And and Does it have kind of a Jack Frost kind of swirly thing going on, or is it, does it just make stuff kind of uh, white and glowing? I mean, the crystals form and duplicate until everything is covered, not just with a, like a fine sort of shimmer, but with big outgrowths of crystal so that the trees all, I mean, uh, it's, it reflects the light, whatever light there is. And at night, moonlight, starlight, streetlights, and it, it really brightens up. The, so even a, a in the very dark winter. Yeah, even in the middle of the night, 
it's um which is 24 hours a day there <laughs> there's a there's so much ambient light that it feels it really is a wonderful thing so when the hoarfrost comes you're you do have the ability to sit and look at those dry crystals and see them you know in their kind of multiplicity it's like a fairyland it really is is, uh, is it like a winter wonderland <sighs> let me think do yes. you ever meet yes. do you ever go to the meadow and meet a snowman and pretend he's some kind of a ecclesiastical figure no no, the moose eat all the snowmen, <laughs> the uh, but, uh, but you do hitch a team of horses to a sleigh and take that team of horses to Fred Meyer where you get, where you play, where you play dig dug. Where you r ride on the little plane <laughs> in front of Fred Meyer. Yeah. You said when the hoarfrost comes, like it's something that everyone awaits. Yeah. When you realize the, I mean, when you, when you walk out and the hoarfrost has come and I don't know if maybe that's a way that we, I think we talk about it that way in Alaska. It's been a long time since I lived there. Because it, when it Mommy, arrives, when will the hoarfrost come? When it arrives, it it stays. Hopefully, you know, if it doesn't warm up, you'll get hoarfrost that stays. Is there a personification a of hoar? Is there some kind of Christmas whore who who, who brings <laughs> who brings the frost? <laughs> this isn't Jeopardy, my friend. Your little innuendo <laughs> comments aren't gonna it doesn't fly. I'm here. not gonna ring the bell for that. I like how Jeopardy is your idea of a depraved kind of entertainment <laughs> that you will not countenance here. Um. But it is because the frost actually will get in the air because it's a dry cold that is required to make it. And you'll just see ice crystals just floating in the, in the air. And sometimes it lasts for weeks at a time. It sounds beautiful. It's wonderful. Move to Alaska immediately. Everyone that's listening to this show, populate that land. It, it has untold riches there. By the time they're listening, Alaska is probably a Tropical Semi-tropical coral reef <laughs> yeah. or something. It depends on where the meteor hits. Alaska might just be a hole. Unfortunately, most of Alaska is built, or, I mean, the whole land is just, it's permafrost. And if that frost melts, it will just turn into a bog. So you're pro-hoarfrost, anti-permafrost. No, I'm pro-permafrost. If the permafrost melts, it just releases billions of tons of methane into the atmosphere. Sure, that's what ended civilization as we know it. All, right. the, all the listeners are aware of what right. what's going to happen when the methane comes out. Right. But they can all breathe methane. They're excited. Like to them, that's like the coming of the hoarfrost. Oh, absolutely. Yay, the coming of the permafrost. <laughs> They're super excited. Hello, methane-breathing futurelings. The custom of paper snowflakes, I was trying to track this down. Now, let me ask you this. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but would snowflakes exist in a methane-rich atmosphere? Oh, uh, there is snow elsewhere in the solar system. For example, on Titan, uh, the largest moon of Saturn, all these worlds are yours, by the way, except Europa, attempt uh -huh. no landings there. But Titan is ours, and uh, Titan is so cold that there are methane clouds that form just like uh, our snow clouds. And so you actually get methane snow. Methane snow. So that's what the futurelings have to look forward to every well, winter. They get a... Uh, Methane hoarfrost. So what shape is a methane snowflake? I have no idea. All right. Methane is a tetrahedron as well. It's CH4 is a, is a perfect tetrahedron. So maybe it's excited. Yeah, but, but, um, I don't but, know. But, uh, but uh, water is not a tetrahedron itself. It forms tetrahedrons. Right. So if methane starts as a tetrahedron, it's going to be, it, it's four dimensional snow. It's snowing time. <laughs> I'll give you, I'll give you a bell for that. It's not even a pun. No, 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 but that's good. It's snowing time. It's not, you don't just get the bell for puns. In our day, it was raining men. 
but in the future it will be snowing time. You don't get a bell for that. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. The, uh, I looked to see how old the custom of making paper snowflakes is, and it appears to only go back to the 1890s. That's the only... Uh, really? That's the earliest text citations I can find for school children doing it as a craft. Is it Japanese? I mean, is it Jap- Japanese-ism? <laughs> Japanese-ism? Were you trying to be more authentic by saying Japanese, <laughs> which I'm sure is what they say in Japan? Japanese. No, I mean, you know. Uh, uh, oh, like the, Japanese-ism. Right, the, the right. importation the, of it to the Belgium. The exoticism of, of Japanese. Right. I don't think so. Um I guess it's possible that they would have seen elaborate paper cuttings and then that would have come out. Um, It may have more to do with when people started to become more aware of what a snowflake actually looked like. Oh. Because I think you could go your whole life and not know that, you know, the magic of what a snowflake looks like up close. Um, Although it's been known by the human race for thousands of years. Uh, in 135 BC, we have the first record of a Chinese scholar figuring it out. You know, he, he writes, flowers of plants and trees are generally five-pointed, which is another kind of weird mystery that lots of fruit trees have five-pointed blossoms. But those of snow, which are called ying, not sure about that, hmm. are always six-pointed. So over 2,000 years ago in our time, the Chinese were well aware that they had looked at a snowflake close enough to be like, these, these little guys were always hexagons. So... At that same time, in 750 BC, so almost, I mean, before the, before this discovery. Well, uh, before the Chinese discovered their first snowflake. The Assyrians were already grinding lenses out of quartz, not necessarily for like Benjamin Franklin style spectacles. They didn't put two lumps of quartz in front of their eyes and walk around (laughs) running into things. No, but they were, you know, they, they, they had already sort of developed the technology of light refracting to ma- amplify, magnify. You could probably read with it, right? You could run your, yeah. your quartz lens over something you were over looking at. Over your papyrus. But, uh, you know, the thing about snowflakes is they disappear. You have to, it's not just looking right. at it up close, you have to look at it up close in time. In the cold. Um, but to the Chinese, it became such a familiar bit of, they were apparently so familiar with the, the structure of snowflakes that uh, in the 6th century, poets would even refer to snow this way. The ruddy, this is Xiao Tong from the sixth century. The ruddy clouds float in the four quarters of the cerulean sky and the white snowflakes show forth their six petaled flowers. Huh. Beautiful, right? It is beautiful. little haiku for you. I'd love to read it in its original Chinese. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I don't have that here because I think we would have really got a lot out of it. Yeah. Oddly enough, there's no record of a European noticing that snow is six-sided for like 
1,700 years. Really? In 1591, the English astronomer <laughs> Thomas Harriot is like, hey, guys, snow has six sides. He's literally 1,600 years behind China. Interesting. Uh, but then Descartes noticed, and in 1611, uh, Kepler is walking out in the cold, and snow alights on his dark-colored coat. Just like it happened to you. Me and Kepler are like, I feel like we could be friends. In more ways than one. Uh, we could be freunden. And he's and he he looks down at the at the snowflake and and writes down that it has six corners and feathered radii and it is a kind of a shocking thing when you see the the natural beauty and perfection of of something you thought would be simple because it all it looks like a man made artistry it looks yeah. designed but it doesn't have well I'm not saying I run it. a creationist museum in Mississippi <laughs> but it looks like the first your first idea is wow who made this. It's the same thing you see when you, you know, a weird spiral on a fern or right. hexagonal basalt columns. You're like, hey, somebody came here. Does it have fractal geometry? Does it recapitulate? I don't know if it recapitulates, but it does keep going down layer of, and it does recapitulate in a general way. You know, branches will form sub-branches, which will form. Right. Like you won't look close enough and see another little snowflake in there. Right. But, right. It, but it does go down many levels. And when Kepler looked at that, he thought... There's something so mathematically perfect going on there that um, some kind of frozen globules must be stacking up in an orderly way on your, on your, on your. to make this hexagon. Like whatever the smallest natural unit of water is, it must stack in this geometric way. And sure. he had just discovered molecules, basically. Write your Chinese poem about that. Yeah. So, so the Chinese were like, ah, it is beautiful like a flower. And right. Kepler's like, I have discovered molecules. Although... He didn't know it. Right. Um, he didn't call them molecules. He didn't. He said frozen globules. Frozen globules. But the rise of snowflake cutting, kirigami, in American classrooms in the early 20th century is contemporaneous with the life of the, the inventor of the modern snowflake. Okay. The man who delivered us the modern snowflake. It was a man named Wilson Bentley uh, who lived a humble life on a tiny little dairy farm in why, why aren't people northwestern Wil Vermont. <laughs> why aren't people named Wilson Bentley anymore? It's pretty great. Yeah, like why name your kid like Corinthian when you, well, that's actually a great name too. Pretty good name. What I, are kids I hope there are lots now? of futurelings named Corinthian. Why name your kid Braden when you could name him Wilson? Because there's a law in a lot of states that you have to name your kid something that rhymes with Aiden. Oh, I That's see. why you got all the Bradens and Caden. the Cadens and the Jadens. Wilson Bentley sounds like like maybe the rich bad guy in an 80s movie? That's true. A, That's true. Wilson Bentley does sound like a bad guy. 70s architecture firm, maybe textbook publisher. But in this case... In this case, he's a dairy farmer from northwestern Vermont, Jericho, Vermont, which again sounds like a fake American town from like a Sherlock Holmes or an Agatha Christie story. <laughs> but it's actually a real little town, still there today, uh, 5,000 people. You can go to the, uh, the old mill, which they've converted into a... Wilson Bentley Museum. He, really? He's a favorite son there. I've been to an old mill. Uh, there's a book bookstore called the Old Mill in uh, Massachusetts that I've done some events at. It seems to be a thing. It's, uh, well, they've got all these mills. They don't need to, Every, gr you need to grind a lot fewer things today. Like how many things did you have to grind today? Maybe one, coffee. I didn't even grind the coffee because I've, I've started using one of those little pop-up container in thing. Yeah. So you grind zero things today. But if, if this was a hundred years ago, it's almost noon. You would have ground 28 things this morning. Absolutely. Well, because I make my own medicaments. <laughs> right. You'd grind all your unguents. You'd grind the pigments if you were painting your barn. Right. You'd grind your fertilizers and your flour and your sugar. Have you ever wanted to live in an old mill? 
Uh, yes. I have to. It's really the only thing I want. Yeah. Is to live in an old mill. My wife, I just found out, has only one thing she wants. She wants to own a mule named Lucky. And all I want is to live in an old mill. How are you going to make this dream come true for her? I feel like if she gives a little, like if she lets me have the mill, the least I can do is buy her a mule. I can see you two living in a mill with a, with a solitary mule. Our, our children have left. <laughs> We're empty nesters. And that's when Lucky moves in. You're, you're upstairs grinding heritage grains and <laughs> she's down feeding grass to a mule. I'm grinding quinoa upstairs. <laughs> The, uh, so yeah, what do you do with all these mills? You put souvenir shops and bookstores and, uh, and art galleries. Museums. What, what else did this dairy farmer, uh, Wilson Bentley, uh, what, what else do they celebrate him for? Pretty much nothing but snowflakes. His nickname is Snowflake Bentley. Huh. And it's not because he's always complaining about the, somebody mispronouning him or whatever. Right. Like he, uh, he just loved snowflakes. Even as a child, he was into science. He was the kid that was always running around. I've never been to Vermont. I think I'm on the record. It's one of the nine states I've never been to. It's lovely. Um, that's what I'm imagining. I've seen Newhart. Right. I'm sure the leaves are nice. It reminds me a little bit of Alaska, actually, although Alaska has nothing. Even the, even the newest building in Vermont is older than the, uh, the oldest building in Alaska. Is it the Alaska of New England, would you say, Vermont? No, it ends up being Maine. Maine is the Alaska of New England. So it's next to the Alaska. Oh, no, it's not. New Hampshire's in the way. Yeah. It's almost next to the Alaska of New England. Right. And uh, Wilson, as a young boy, was fascinated by its natural beauty. He was a kid who would run around collecting butterflies and leaves and spider webs. You know, he had, uh, the bug collection thing we have talked about. But he got pressed into being a dairy farmer by fate. Cruel right? fate. Yeah. He could have been born anywhere. <laughs> He, uh, he didn't actually go to school. Like speaking of cruel fate, there was a one room schoolhouse he went to for about a year, but he was mostly taught at home. So his mom apparently instilled a love of science in him. Uh, mm -hmm. They were, I'm imagining good Yankee dairy farm folk probably never would have spoken to their children if not for having to homeschool him. Right. So it was probably a good thing that they had to explain spider webs and cows having sex and whatever else you have to explain. Probably made delicious pumpkin pie. Oh man. Imagine the hoarfrost on the pumpkin mm -hmm. up there. On his 15th birthday, his mom gave him a microscope, which was his favorite thing ever because now he could look at butterflies, scales up close, and spiderwebs up close. I love Mrs. Bentley in this story. She really comes off well. Yeah. Uh, I almost think it's problematic that we're focusing on the man who got all the attention <laughs> and not Mrs. Bentley, who really, without whom, yeah. this never could have happened, right? Behind every great man, there's, there's a his great, mom. There's a great dairy farmer's <laughs> wife. Uh, he loved his new microscope and he happened to live in Northwest Vermont where there is a ton of snow. Uh, Jericho, Vermont, I looked it up, gets about 120 inches of snow a year. They call it the snow belt. And he was fascinated by snowflakes and how they were structured. He, as he became a teenager, he tried to, he wanted to communicate some of the ineffable beauty he saw when he looked at a snowflake up close. And he tried to draw them, and that didn't work out. But he was having a hard time photographing them. They're small. As we've said, they're here today, gone tomorrow. Um, but he had a microscope. So he was trying to figure out a way you could photograph a snowflake. In the end, he realized what you could do is if he, if he took off the microscope, the eyepiece of his microscope, and attached that directly to a, an old-timey bellows camera. Uh -huh. Could you imagine one of those bellows cameras with the guy holding the <laughs> thing? <laughs> And just using a black card, placing a black card over the lens, so he kind of a handheld shutter, he would go out into the cold 
and find likely looking snowflakes. And he didn't want to disturb them, so he would pick them up with a feather, take them into a very cold barn, and rig up his little camera microscope. Uh, what do we say? Doohickey? What's a, what's a, it's got spurving bearings. You mean a turbo encabulator? Yes. Yeah. It's his own little dairy farm turbo encabulator. It seems like he would be famous for having invented this. I mean, he's the first person to, I mean, there are, there are 40 apps now that allow you to do this with your cell phone. And he only had eyes for snowflakes. I'm sure that you're right. There's multiple applications for this thing he invented. He could have been taking tiny pictures of butterfly scales. Uh, And he had no idea if this was going to work out. And he later wrote that he he tried a 90-second exposure. um, So the snowflake has to stay as is for a minute and a half. And he says says it worked. Uh, He was 19 years old. He says, I felt almost like falling to my knees beside that apparatus. It was the greatest moment of my life. Wow. So imagine you've dreamed your whole life of conveying the beauty of snowflakes to people. And suddenly there it is on your photographic glass plate in all its natural wonder. It's a total Yankee Chinese poem. Exactly. Right? It's the, <laughs> it's the Robert Frost equivalent of uh, the ruddy clouds float in the four quarters of the cerulean sky. Yeah. He put together a, a butter churn that uh, <laughs> communicates <laughs> that makes haiku <laughs> what no words could do uh and we know now that he was not actually the very first to do this they're going to get mad at me in 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 new vermont or whatever it's called now um no vermont we have some 1870s precursors a, a russian scientist who had also figured out how to photograph snowflakes with a microscope and a german guy named flurgel i think <laughs> Is that pl- is that- of course his name is Flurgel. Actually, now that I say that, I have no idea. Flurgel is the little annoying cat that bothers Garfield so much. I thought a Flurgel was part of a, a turbo encapsulator. <laughs> it's, uh, you need to realign the Flurgel bearings. Yeah, Johann Heinrich Flurgel. Johann Heinrich Flurgel. I think Flurgel is the sound that a snowflake makes when it melts. Flurgel. So he's got to get that the shutter to snap before it flurgles. But he did not pioneer the... Flurgel and the and the nameless Russian scientist did Sigson, not Sigson did not then duplicate snowflakes by cutting them out of paper. And I'm <laughs> I'm guessing Bentley did. Well, I think at the, at this time, I think people had already tried to make kind of doily like patterns of snowflakes. So he didn't invent that, but what he invented was the consciousness of it because he devoted his life to the beauty and shape of snowflakes. He wrote over 60 articles huh. about the crystalline structures he was examining. He invented his own classification system for, you know, this is a hexagonal prism. This one is stellar dendritic snowflake because it's got tree-like branches coming off of it. It's the same system we use today, although we've added a few dozen more. And did did you see an explosion of representations of snowflakes in like ads for uh, for Marks and Spencer and so forth. That's exactly what happens. It becomes a, a winter symbol. It becomes an advertising thing. I assume this is around the same time that Christmas is kind of becoming a corporatized, consumerized thing, and we need wintry decoration. Um, it's the same time, you know, more kids start cutting snowflakes and they appear in quilts. And most of this is because of his publication. Um, he was a real evangelist for it. Um, He said, under the microscope, I found that snowflakes were miracles of beauty, and it seemed a shame that this beauty should not be seen and appreciated by others. You know, he's thinking of billions of humans who have seen snowfall, and yet how many have shared his experience of seeing these cathedral-like wonders up close. Every crystal was a masterpiece of design, and no one design was ever repeated. When a snowflake melted, 
That design was forever lost. That much beauty was gone without leaving any record behind. Oh, so he is the one who gave us this no no two snowflakes are alike thing. Yes. Uh, he is the originator of the trope that no two, and he was convinced of this. And we still believe it's true today, although obviously we have not looked at every snowflake. Um, in Does two, science back up that no two snowflakes are ever alike? Well, it's kind of yes with an if, no with a but. On a molecular level, obviously. I have never heard that turn of phrase, and it's really nice. Where is that the thing that people say? Uh, yes with an if and no with a but? It's from uh, Simpsons, where Flanders is seeking pastoral help from the Reverend, uh, Reverend Lovejoy. Mm -hmm. And he says, is God punishing me? And uh, as he always does, Lovejoy hedges. He's like, well, Ned, <laughs> yes with an if, no with a but. Um, in this case, obviously, no two shapes are molecularly identical, even the two most identical things, you know, two cans of Coke or whatever. On the molecular level, there's all kinds of differences going on. Right. But if you leave that aside, it's possible that a very simple snowflake that's just a hexagonal prism could have the same design. But once you get into the more elaborate Baroque snowflakes, these stellar dendritic ones that kids like to cut out of paper, uh, a 2006 paper by some uni at, the, at a University of Delaware conference on snow, <laughs> which I guess. Why was I not invited? <laughs> Did you think it was about the reggae artist snow? It's not. Uh, the, this paper found that there are, they did some math and found that there have only been 10 to the 40th power snowflakes that have ever fallen in the history of man. But there are 10 to the 10 to the 13 possible shapes. That's one followed by 10 trillion zeros. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the so, number the number of shapes far surpasses the number of atoms in the universe, much less the number of snowflakes that have fallen. I love that they they estimated the number of snowflakes that have ever fallen. That's got to be a little dicey, right? Yeah. I mean, that's some back of the envelope stuff. Sure. I think what they used is the weight of snow, you know, and then the current weight that fall, you know, current weight of that falls every year. What's the weight of the snowflake? Divide that out. Then, but then you've got to do climatic calculations. Sure. With, were there centuries when, you know, millennia when earth was too hot to snow, obviously. And all of the ice age ice times. Ice ages, does that balance it out? Uh, there is some thought that uh, the earth was at some point a snowball. The whole thing was covered in snow. So maybe it right. all balances out. Uh, the whole, so he gave us the uniqueness idea that uh, every snowflake is its own little thing. And that did not actually apply to people much until, it's all Chuck Palahniuk's fault, basically, <sighs> that we have our um, liberal snowflakes meme. Because he uh, used it in Fight Club, uh, the idea that, you know, you are not a special little snowflake. That's, it's, it was originally more of a child-rearing thing, right, I think. Right, right, right. That kids in the Dr. Spock era were raised to believe that they were all special little miracles. Right. And the, the edgelord Chuck Palahniuk take is, no, whatever. You know, people are all the same. You don't get to act like that. So it's, it started out more, of a, more as a... You know, let's be real with our kids. Right. Let's let them have their experiences and not shield them. And why, why do you even know what a duvet cover is? Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, if we, I don't know how it's really connected to consumer culture, but in Polonix's mind, yeah, if we would not be such helicopter parents, our kids wouldn't be these little, you know, sure. self absorbed centers of the universe. We, well, we know for a fact that, you know, the baby boomers, there were, that none of them were self absorbed. No, no, they were just, they just wanted what was best for the world. Yeah, the most selfless generation, I think they're known as. They just wanted uh, the war in Vietnam to end. Uh -huh. They didn't want to get drafted. Not for them, you understand. Yeah. But for the, for the Southeast Asia. They went and wanted to tune in, turn on, and drop out, which. That, that seems like, that, actually, that doesn't help. 
It turns out it didn't. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers, it didn't. It just bankrupted Social Security. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Uh, do you think that there's something intrinsic to the, if you see a large snowflake, like a cartoon snowflake hanging in a department store, mm -hmm. and you hadn't been acculturated to recognize it as a snowflake. Do you think there's something to it that you would immediately know was a wintertime thing, a, a winter phenomenon? A, a, if you were, if you showed one to a Neanderthal, would they say, ah, snow? Would they say, ah, winter? I think no. Am I wrong? I feel like children have to be carefully taught that this thing is actually snow, even though their idea of snow is a white covered landscape and no school buses running. Right. Uh, it doesn't really intuitively match unless you've had the experience of seeing one on your mitten and being like, whoa. And of course, in our culture, you've already seen the media snowflake. So when you see it on your mitten, you're like, it's oh, the other way around. It's just like uh, in the Macy's ad or wow, whatever. This is Hollywood and Vine. I've heard about it so much. It's kind of like when I may have put this in the omnibus before, but when John Glenn launched from, uh, Cape, Cape Canaveral. Canaveral. Was it Kennedy yet? No, 62. When he launched from Cape Canaveral for the first time, he looked down at Florida and said, hey, it's all laid out just like a map. <laughs> he, he discovered Florida and it reminded him of a map. Thank goodness they put windows in the uh, mercury capsules. That's when they really should have sent a poet, I think. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think... Uh, you know, that's why they put Buzz Aldrin on the moon, I'm convinced. Because, because because they knew they knew that his cowboy poetry that well they knew Armstrong was the guy to do it because he had no real human feelings, but they needed somebody on the on the moon that could say like wow it's like it's Obama and Biden yeah you right. you want one kind of stiff uh, steady hand at the till you know tiller dignity robot right but then you got to have crazy uncle crazy <laughs> uncle Buzz in the capsule. I'm sure Neil was like, cut it out. Oh, shut up for once. It's a plot point in the movie. Did you watch the Neil Armstrong biopic? Yeah, that's why I mentioned it's it. It's a plot point in the movie that everyone just hates Buzz. <laughs> Buzz, shut up. They died. He's and, the worst. And Buzz is still alive, right? I mean, he, yeah. he, he has to have seen that movie. I believe like, uh, in our era, only three men who have walked on the moon are still alive. And he might be the oldest, actually. Isn't that crazy? Uh, in we, we have done... The future a disservice. Futurelings, I'm sorry that we've let this long interregnum without space travel go by, but hopefully you're listening to this show on a Mars colony 
And so you know how this turns out. At this point, we are guaranteed pretty much to have a span of time where no living human has been on the moon. Because Ugh. the last three guys... Uh, they're all in their They're 80s. all in their 80s, yeah, right? 80s and 90s. And there's no way we're getting to the moon in 10 years. That's infuriating to We me. need to keep one of them alive in a tank <laughs> till they turn 100 or whatever. What, like the day somebody lands on the moon, it'll be like, Buzz will be like, kill me, <laughs> kill me. And there will be a ceremonial execution. <laughs> Uh, just, Maybe we can let Elon Musk kill him. Yeah, that's right. Elon yeah. Musk will shoot a car at him. Ta-da! <laughs> just to finish the story of Wilson Bentley, which I'm sure has everything to do with uh, this sidetrack about Buzz Aldrin being a <laughs> jerk. <laughs> he, uh, in 1904, he, by 1904, he'd accumulated 500 photos of different snowflakes, a beautiful collection, uh, and he sent them to the Smithsonian, and the curator of the museum was like, nah. No. Really? Yeah. Uh, and his take was that this was unscientific. You're just a guy on a dairy farm. It was credentialism, basically. Are they extant? Can you buy one of his original prints? You can. Luckily, what happened, you know, despite this kind of scientific chauvinism or whatever you want to call it. Because, sure. you know, this was the age of the gentleman farmer who was also, we talked about the guy inventing the boysenberry or whatever. Right. Lots but of people had, had sciencey hobbies. He had to be a gentleman, not just some, like, dirt Yankee. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, maybe that was the problem. But luckily, the secretary of the whole Smithsonian came across the photos and were like, these are amazing. Uh, I must have them. And so they are still in the Smithsonian today. You, oh, can, you can go to the climate-controlled room and see Bentley's uh, photos. But even they're even easier to find than that because uh, in 1925, he published a book of hundreds of his best photographs. And that is still in print today. Huh. Um, you can still see Wilson, the, the Wilson Bentley's, the fruit of his 60 odd years of life, which he pretty much spent milking cows and milking the snowflake <laughs> thing. <laughs> milking cows and photographing snowflakes. Uh, he died on his farm on December 23rd, 1925, just shortly after his book, Snow Crystals had come out, <sighs> cementing snow in the public Mind. Sadly, he died of pneumonia after walking six hours through a blizzard. I wonder why. It, it's a, a fitting end. You live by the snowflakes, you die by the snowflakes. And that concludes Snowflakes. Entry 1181.PS14716. Certificate number 16919 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era... Because snow probably doesn't. Methane snow probably does. Enjoy the methane snow. What color is it? We don't even know. Chlorine snow. What's the shape of chlorine? The shape of chlorine. That's the sequel to The Shape of Water, but uh, <laughs> they're just in a public pool this time. They're just going at it in a public pool. Uh, in the unlikely event that the chlorine rain allows you to continue to peruse Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram... Your phone melts under the onslaught. All of our uh, stuff posts are archived at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at John Roderick and at Precious Snowflake. Uh, I wish I had at Precious Snowflake. Oh, is, look that up. Maybe we should get at Precious Snowflake. You just uh, be, we're just libeling some random person who was smart enough to get this. Uh, I, would, I would love to find out what they're, I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're some Pepe. The funny thing is all these uh, people criticizing the precious snowflakes on the left, they, they don't take criticism real well themselves. No, they it's, don't. It's ironic. They're precious chlorine flakes. Uh, I have an Instagram account, at John Roderick. It's great there. It's, you know, it's tragedy, it's comedy, 
It's the whole human drama. Life's rich pageant. You can email us, and please do. Ken will probably answer you. Um, that's a popular form of electronic communication in our day. Not so popular with you, apparently, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm the only one answering. I just keep forgetting it's there, but I do go answer it sometimes. I go in and tell people uh, to shut their pie traps. Shut your pie hole, Jay. And uh, they're like, <gasps> he responded. <laughs> Thank you, John Roderick. <laughs> Uh, email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. It will be confusing to futurelings that the word at means two different things in a sentence like that. Yes. Email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. We don't even say it differently. We, we definitely don't say uh, our tweets are archived at at Omnibus Project. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you just have to assume that sometimes when I say at, it means two ats. At, at. Yes, like yeah. in Star... In, uh, in Star, Star, Star Trek. Track. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of snow, the snowy, the uh, snowy Star Trek planet of, uh, planet of Vulcan. I noticed that in the latest Star Trek movie, they're on a snowy planet, but it's a different snowy planet than the snowy planet in uh, Return of the Jedi. I think you've been misled. Uh, It's the same snowy planet? You know how many aneurysms you are causing right now? (laughs) (laughs) He said it was Return of the Jedi. That's not even a Star Trek movie. They're on a white planet, but it's like a salt bed. Salt bed. Oh, so it's not snowy. It's It's salty. Yes. Uh, See, they've run out of, uh, they've run out of biomes, basically, is the Star Wars problem. I see. Because they went too fast. They were like, we only have to do three of these. So desert, boom, snow, boom, redwoods, boom, swamp. And then they're like, "Wait, wh- what else is there?" Uh-oh. Uh oh. Water. They haven't done a water. Pl- they haven't done a water world yet. There is a water world in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Uh, when Obi Wan Kenobi goes to see where they're making clones in. One oh, of the, you're talking about what I consider to be the non-canonical three first second movies. To you, these are like Song of Solomon. They're. I, I refuse to acknowledge them. They're they're uh, they're apocrypha. They're like the. Uh, they're like the gospel of Judas. <laughs> it's like all these all these stories of what Ben Kenobi was doing as a boy. Yeah. You're like, come on. Come on. I've seen this before. This is like Jesus doing uh, magic tricks out in the desert. These aren't real. No, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, email us, please. It'll be great. Um, people like you really, to e- you really got right back into that. People like to email us uh, uh, suggestions for the show. Would you like to encourage them to email us other things? Would you like praise? Do you feel like you're not getting enough praise? No. I feel like I react. First of all, uh, I don't know how to act when I'm praised. Right, I feel like comfortable. Yeah. And second of all, I feel like it's not good for me to be praised. Right. I've found that to be true. I need to, like you, oh, found, that I, you found that I am insufferable when <laughs> stopped, I'm praised. I stopped praising you a long time ago. <laughs> you, on the other hand, probably love it. You thrive on it. Uh, you're a no, front man. No, I'm also uncomfortable with praise and I'm not one of the front men that thrives on uh, being loved by fans, right? I'm the introverted kind. You don't like the limelight. You're a you're a shoegaze band. I don't. <laughs> I don't mind the the limelight, but it does not fill me. It empties me. Do you literally have a limelight on your shows? Is it? Are you burning calcium? Whatever. I'm living in the limelight. It's the universal dream, Ken. <laughs> um, no, I. You know, there are there are performers that go out on stage and give, and then have to go home and replenish. Mm-hmm. On their own, and I am that kind. Not the kind that goes out and is just like, we just did a two-hour show, now let's go to the bar. Now let's go, come on, don't let the party end. 
the introverted frontman that John Roderick said. The loneliness of the long-distance introverted frontman. I'm sorry to say. I know how it is. I know I don't think people should send us press. I think people should send us uh, abuse. Abuse. And, and criticism. No, I don't like that either. No, what, I, what? I, I hate that too. <laughs> I don't have the stomach for that. Are you kidding? What do I want? I mean, you know, I've, I've said it many times. I just want free stuff. And on that note, you can mail us at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. People can email us virtual free stuff. You can like e- send us the number from your Starbucks gift card. Somebody emailed me the other day a photo stat of a letter that my great uncle sent to their family. Wow! During World War One, to announce to them the death of their son. My Wait. my great uncle, Captain Thomas Edison Roderick. You are kidding me. Who was an infantry this is a, captain. This is a fake character who will be played by you also in a disguise <laughs> in the sketch. Uh, he, was a, he was a captain and his sergeant was killed uh, by a mortar. And he wrote to the family and said, I'd just like you to know what an invaluable man you're your son was, and I couldn't have done it without this him. This was in France. This was in the Pacific. Where yeah, was it this? was in France. The, we, the, there was no Pacific theater in the in World War One. Oh, you American said World War One. <laughs> you said World War Two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, there were there were things happening there. Because I was going to say France or Belgium, and then I was like, well, Belgium's probably World War One. I. I was way off. Uh, Maybe because I was picturing Saving Private Ryan the whole time right. that you were talking about Thomas Edison Roderick. It was in the Belia Wood. Um, but uh, he went on, Thomas Edison Roderick went on to become a general who was on Eisenhower's staff, and he died in North Africa during World War II. Wow. And I, I, I don't know that much about him. The Roderick brothers were all mysterious to me because my own grandfather died in the 50s. So I have no, I had no familial connection to them in the sense I didn't know any of those cousins or anything. They were all. So one thing people could send us is a photostat of uh, letters from our great uncles. That's right. If you have any. If you have, um, if you've come up with a brilliant scientific formula that will make millions, but you don't want to patent or manufacture it. Good idea. We don't want to do that work either. So. But we would sell it if you just send it to us for free. I have always thought that any listener that listens to this program while developing a billion dollar app or any kind of genius uh, future company should pay us back in the form of pre-IPO stock grants. Absolutely. We we let your mind wander while you were coding Mindwander. Right. Or whatever your <laughs> app is called. Mindwander.ru. Like if, you're, if your app is called Omnibus Tangents, we will know <laughs> and we will come after you. Uh, also, we encourage you to join the Omnibus Futurelings Facebook page where Futurelings congregate. It was once upon a time in the early days of the Futurelings page, there were no swears and there was no, uh, the early moderators did not allow people to date one another on the site. But all of that has fallen into it's 100% swearing <laughs> and dating. It's controlled chaos now over there. People are, it's mostly dating. And then when it goes badly, swearing, swearing. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the methane snows that we fear may never come. We hope that the hoarfrost comes, but not the methane snow. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope that we will be back with you soon for yet another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.